Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good morning. I may invite you to take your Bibles if you brought a copy of the Scriptures. Open with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, we're going to continue in our series, our look into the book of Hebrews. And uh, man, God has just been so kind to us. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, to get, last week we, uh, we celebrated eight baptisms together. One, uh, yeah, praise the Lord. And, uh, <laughs> and then five today and one the two weeks ago man 14 baptism god's just listen that's one of those things i know we get i know we plow but god brings harvest you know what i'm talking about and uh it just it's been cool just watching how god's worked in the midst of the, i could probably talk about that a long time but then we wouldn't get to the message and then you wouldn't get to lunch and that would be a bad thing a bad thing so as we look at the book of Hebrews, we're going to be in verse 10 this morning. We're going to work through the first 18 verses of Hebrews. And um, let me introduce the message to you this way. When, uh, when I first was confronted with the gospel, first confronted with the gospel, I was a, I was, I was a young boy. Um, and when I was first confronted with the gospel, here was the decision that was before me and that I really made. I didn't want to go to the bad place. In other words, I was taught about hell and I thought, man, if that's true, I don't want any part of that. And uh, so I want to go to heaven. That's the op opposite of that. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to the bad place. I want to go to hell. So, man, I prayed and asked Jesus to save me. Now hold on to that for just a second. Because I held on to that same thought process about salvation, about what salvation is throughout my childhood and early teen years, only in really young adulthood. The idea was, man, if I can just keep my nose clean here, then when we all get to heaven, things will be great there. And, and that that was the sum total of that. It probably wasn't until my young adult years where Someone, I, don't, I assume someone was helping to explain this to me, maybe Holy Spirit just working in my life, but I came to realize that what Jesus came for was so much more than that, okay? I, I'm not saying there's not a hell, there is a hell. It's a real place and it's a real destination and it is a real future for everyone who has rebelled against God and refused God's purpose in Jesus. It's, that, it's true, it is those things. But salvation is not just about avoiding that. Jesus said, I've come that you'd have life and have it abundantly. And I came to realize that God wanted more, God wanted for me, not from me. God wanted to do something for me, not simply to get something from me in our relationship. There is a more beautiful purpose to salvation than simply not going to the bad place and one day we'll all get to heaven. Now, you may say, well, thanks for sharing all of that, but maybe you're 
concept of salvation similar to mine. Or maybe it was early on. Maybe you went to um, one of those programs that we put in churches where uh, pictorially, visually, we represented hell and how bad it was and, uh, and heaven and how much Jesus could do. And you prayed a prayer, get me out of this. I don't want to go there. I want to say to you today, I want you to go next level with me. I want you to understand that what Jesus came for, what salvation is, what we've been talking about in the new covenant is so much more than not. It's much more of what God wants to do in your life. It's true, Jesus did absorb the penalty of sin for all who believe. That's true, but there's more. Jesus came to restore hope. Jesus came to restore purpose. Jesus came to make tangible the promises of God. Jesus came to empower us to, to live according to His blessings and, and by His grace. Jesus came to empower us to overcome temptation. Jesus came to walk, or that we might walk in victory. Jesus came so that you and I would know that your life matters. Jesus came to redeem and to restore marriages, to repair estranged relationships. He came to strengthen us in the midst of our suffering and even to empower us that we might overcome it. That's the outcome of the new covenant that we've been talking about. That's the subject of the section that really wraps up this teaching on the new covenant as we kind of put a pen toward Hebrews chapter 10 uh, today. Well, at least the first part of it. So here's what I want to do. I want, to, I want us to read together Hebrews chapter 10. And if you're able, would you, would you stand with me in honor of the Word of God? Hebrews 10, we're going to begin in verse 1. And if you're joining us from home, we're grateful for your presence here. I hope you'll follow along with us. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. The Bible says, Hebrews 10 and verse 1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they continually year by year which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now drop down to verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their hearts and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Would you pray with me? Father, in these moments, it's our heart's desire that we would not only understand all that Christ has accomplished, but 
truly what you desire for us in our purpose. So would you even now open our hearts and take the word and plant it deep within our hearts and then find our response to it in such, as such that it brings honor and glory to the name of Christ. That's our heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. If you'd like to follow along, there is an outline that's available for you. It's at the link that they'll put up on the screen there. It's also available if you're in the room. Uh, right down at your feet is like a, a QR code. And if you scan that with your device, it's kind of a, the dashboard to Inglewood. And it's got, among other things, it has on there a link to the uh, outline today. I want to show you three contrasting truths. That's how the, the writer sort of lays out this case. He gives them by way of contrasting truths. So I want to show you those three truths that are in contrast in a message simply entitled, A Better Sanctification. A Better Sanctification. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Jesus provides for us a better sanctification. Notice with me, first of all, right where the author uh, lays out his argument from, notice with me the difference between shadow and substance. Shadow and substance. Go back to verse 1, if you would. He says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Now, he draws a contrast here between two ideas, between the shadow, the Greek word skia, and the very form, or the actual, the substance. That's the Greek word icon. And the shadow here refers to something that is foreshadowed or anticipated. In other words, it's a, it's a picture of something that's coming. It gives an image, it's an illusion, it's a... It's, it, 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 it's to represent what's coming, but it's not the real thing. It's like if, if this afternoon you go to one of the restaurants that has on the menu pictures of the meals, you may open it up and go, man, that's exactly what I want for lunch. That is the skia, the shadow to come. But you won't be satisfied just looking at the picture. You'll look at the picture and you'll just be hungrier. You won't actually be full. Am I following? Are you following me? And, and for everybody except those seven, are y'all following me? I just uh, want to make sure we're all on this thing together. I'm talking about food now. Surely you're with me on food, all right? That's the skia, the picture that you find in the menu. But then you've got the icon. That's the very form. That's the, uh, the actual manifest presence. It's, the, it's what happens when the food actually comes to the table. That you can feast on. The, the picture, the skia, was intended to say <clears throat> it's going to be good, but it's not really great yet. This is intended to say, man, how good is it? And here's what he said, the law is a shadow, but it was never the substance. Now that's not to say that the law was somehow broken or insufficient. It was actually designed that way. Just like looking at the menu was never intended to fill you up. It was intended to make you long for what was coming. The law worked the same way. The law wasn't broken because it didn't satisfy the, the sin debt. The law did exactly what it was supposed to do. It was to cause us to look forward to that which was coming. Therefore, it foreshadowed it. Now you say, Chris, how, 
how do you know that the law is but a shadow? I mean, are you hanging your whole argument on one word in one verse? I'm so glad you asked. Actually, no. I want to show you the three evidences that the writer puts in there that says that's not true. He says, here's how you know it's a shadow. Notice he said, first of all, the repetition of the sacrifice. This sacrifice, this shadow was required to be done over and over again, year after year, over and over. It never was complete. That's by both directive, God declared this is what you're to do, and by desire. There was something in them that said, I don't feel complete yet. It was both instructed and intuitive, and it occurred year after year after year. Had they been satisfied, it would not have been repeated. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. He simply says the repetition itself is intended to point to the fact you're not home yet if you were trying to be in right relationship with God via the law. Now, if the law had been substance, there would have been no repetition. But there had to be because there was still guilt in the minds of the people. They still knew something is amiss. The first evidence is the repetition. Secondly, there's the guilty conscience. See, even if a priest, even if you had taken your sacrifice and carried it to the priest, and the priest had said, that's it, all of your, all of your sins are absolved, you're good. I'd contend there was still something in you that said, thank you, but am I? I I mean, I hear you, but I don't feel good on the inside. I feel like something's still missing. Now, by the way, feelings are not authoritative, but they are kind of like the, they are kind of like that light on your dash that says engine under it. They warn you something's about to happen if you don't pay attention. So these feelings that would be there are feelings of a guilty conscience. He said that guilty conscience is still there even if you had kept to the law. The third is the continual longing. Verse 1 ended with the phrase, those who draw near, those who draw near, those who come close, those who pursue after. Well, that, hey, that should ask the question then, who draws near? Those who are desiring something more. In fact, God's designed us to desire something more, and that more is Him. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 73, verse 28. He said, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The psalmist said, he said, oh, it is so good to be near to God. James said, if we're not near to God, we ought to come near to God. James 4 and verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James said that if you find yourself, there's distance between you and God. The reason is sin and and dirty hands, and an impure, undefiled heart, and a double-minded, without-faith viewpoint. It's sin. Drawing near points to an incessant homing beacon inside us that desires 
to be with the one who creates it. It's infatuated with God. It desires His closeness and His presence. It wants to be with God and, and, and in close communion with God. That happens with all His children. Drawing near points to that. But the law was never actually fully able to achieve that apart from Christ. The psalmist points to the desire, but James points to the obstacle in the substance. He says that, that it's, there, there's unresolved rebellion that must be dealt with. The substance, on the other hand, the law leaves us there, but the substance, that is the body of Christ, absolutely brings it so that we can draw near to Christ. And not only that we can draw near to Christ, but that it satisfies our desire, our longing. His sacrifice as contrasted with that of bulls and goats and, uh, and, and other animal sacrifices that were obviously insufficient for all the reasons that we talked about. His sacrifice is different and it's better. I don't know what your daily disciplines are with the Lord, but one of the things that's just part of my discipline, part of what I do is, uh, is I pray for a people group. I've got an app, and uh, some of you have the same, the same app, perhaps. It comes out of South Asia, but it's an app uh, on my phone in my quiet time, that, or on my iPad, my quiet time, that tells me here's a people group that has little to no access to the gospel. And constantly, consistently, regardless of the words that I would use in a prayer, there's a theme that always permeates. God, would you create a dissatisfaction in their heart toward the things they have that they would long for the things that they need why because someone who believes that uh, an idol that's been crafted by their hands if they bring it a cup of milk and it'll be satisfied and give them give them meaning and purpose that person will never seek after God but if God opens our eyes to the futility of that, to the emptiness of that, to the longing of that, I pray, I pray, God, help them to come to where they're dissatisfied with where they are and then place a witness in front of them to tell them how Jesus satisfies. By sharing stories of hope, by sharing testimonies of, of their conversion, by sharing, uh, by sharing the truths of the gospel, how they can be restored. Why? Because drawing near is a natural part of the creature toward its creator. If we become dissatisfied, then we'll look for the more and the better, and that's Jesus. Notice, secondly, not just the shadow and substance, but secondly, the sanctification versus justification. Sanctification versus justification. I've just used two theological terms with you. I'm sure you're familiar, but if by some chance you, just for clarity, so we're all singing out of the same hymn book, so to speak. Justification is that part of salvation where God pronounces us not liable, not guilty, not responsible for the penalty. Where He says you have been absolved of the responsibility for your sins, for your crimes. That's been handled already. That's justification. Some see salvation as simply that. That's the sum total of it. It's justification. And it is that, but it's more than that. Notice Hebrews 10 and verse 10. He says, by this we will have been sanctified. By the way, if your person that marks in your Bible or highlights in your app, that's a good word to highlight. By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. This idea of sanctification is so much more than just being pronounced not guilty. Justification pronounces not guilty. It's a forensic, it's a legal declaration. But sanctification speaks of a process that begins there, but doesn't end there. It continues perpetually as we're being molded and conformed and shaped to look like Jesus, till we're being perfected in Christ. Did you notice he said we were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? It must be more than just pronouncing not guilty because his sacrificial death makes possible sanctification, not only justification. Salvation not only satisfied the penalty of sin, but it overcame its power. It allows us to be, to, to, to be renewed to the purpose, to, to why God created us to begin with. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, I have come that you might right now in the present have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus says in His work that He came not just to redeem us from the penalty of our sin, but to restore us to purpose, and thereby restoring our peace. We can find wholeness in holiness because of what Christ has accomplished. That also means then that the once for all is not just that uh, Jesus died just to pay my penalty once for all. Jesus died once that I would be sanctified. And that's true for me and for all, that I would be molded and conformed and shaped into the image of Christ. Isn't that the point of Romans 8? For God works all things together for good to those who love the Lord, those who are called according to His purpose. He tells us in Romans that He's using all of the circumstances, all of the situations, all of the trials, all of the mountaintop experiences in order to change us, mold us, make us like Jesus. He says for this purpose that Jesus would be considered the preeminent or the first among many brothers and sisters. That's the idea that's here, sanctification. The once for all is not only the penalty, which covers the present and, and even future sin, but it's also the power. It empowers us for holiness so that we can achieve the purpose. And that cannot be done apart from Christ. But hear me, it cannot be denied with Christ. It cannot be done apart from Christ, but it cannot be denied with Christ. In other words, it's not too far of a stretch for any of us with Jesus, because Jesus made it possible once for all. Let me show you how he articulates that. Look at verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It'll help us if we, if we nerd out in some grammar for a moment. Will you nerd out in grammar for a moment with me? The word perfect there or perfected there appears in the perfect tense. It's a verb in the perfect tense. And the Greek perfect means that it's something that happened once and that it was settled then and it's still settled today. We were perfected. It happened once and we're still perfected. We're still justified. We're still saved, ongoing. It's perfected. But the word sanctified is in the present tense, 
which means that we are, it wasn't that he made us holy and that was the sum total. We were done day one. You're as good as you're going to be. No, it's that we are presently being conformed, molded, shaped, changed to become like Jesus. Both perfected, once and for all done, and ongoing work being made to look like, to live like, to hope like Christ. And oh, by the way, that happens to also be in the passive voice, since we're going to have a nerd moment. It's in the passive voice, which means, for those of you who've forgotten how to diagram sentences since high school, it means you don't do the work, someone else does it, and you receive it. So, here's what he's saying. You're being conformed to the image of Christ and someone else is doing the conforming. You say, well, I'll never get there. Good. You don't have to. He does. Holy Spirit, work it in your life to shape, to mold, to bring in circumstances, to put you in situations, to place you in dependence, to teach you to walk by faith. He gave you teenagers so that you would learn things. He does all of this stuff. Why? Because he's in the process of conforming you. You're passive. Now listen, passive does not mean that he works against our cooperation. It just means that he does not work independent of, or we do not work independent of the one who causes it. This connects for me because that means... God wants something more in our lives and he's trying, to, he's trying to bring that about in our lives. I was reading recently in a publication for sociologists about the greatest challenges that exist for our modern time in the context where we are. So I'm talking about the West or primarily the United States. And it says one of the greatest challenges right now is there is a exponential growth in the diagnosis of the experience of anxiety and particularly among uh, young people and even more particularly among young females and uh, you start thinking anxiety well why is that now some would say well it's because we have a label for it now we didn't have a label before now that we have a label now we can call it that and it's always been there and hey it's we've always had anxiousness everybody had to take a times table test sometime in school so we've always had anxiousness I get that but there's something different about it today in fact as professionals research this and study it by talking to people who deal with these things one of the prevalent reasons given my words just cooking down their statement is that it's for folks that said I don't want to miss the purpose for which I was created I don't want to mess it up I want to get it right you say, well, nobody struggles with that. Have you ever worked with a child trying to pick the college they were going to? They're looking at different stuff and which classes should I take and where should I work and where should I invest my life? Who should I date? All of these things are sources of anxiousness. And if you're trying to solve all of that in your own strength, you're overwhelmed but isn't it interesting that Jesus is the answer actually to all of that, even if no one asked him the question? Because in our salvation, in our sanctification, in our growth in Christ, 
He is actively sanctifying us while we are passively cooperating with that. And you don't have to know. Hey, listen, you don't have to know where the map ends. You just have to know how to take the next step. He's called you to go, what's the next step? It's right there. I'm taking that one. Well, where are you going to be in five years? I don't know. But the next step's right here. That's the purpose. That's faith. That's where we've been called to live. That's the cure for the anxiousness around us. As someone with a couple of adult children, I can say I probably contributed to their anxiousness. I wished I could think of the number of times. I didn't tell the first service this because I would have felt bad. I can't think of the number of times I probably said to my sons, well, where are you going to go to school? I mean, what are you going to study? Do you not know? Do you not know what kind of work you want to do for the rest of your life? I'm glad if I had, if I did say that, I'm glad they never came back to me and said to me, well, how many different jobs have you had? (laughs) Y'all are sitting here thinking, dude, you went from dominoes to policing to sales. You've done everything. I know I can't have a good job. Here's your purpose, the next step. Some days I'm just grateful God doesn't tell me what the end of the map looks like. I imagine I'd be curled up in the fetal position over here sucking my thumb going, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take me away from all of this. But he's gracious. Hey, here's what's true if he's working out his purpose in you. You're growing in holiness. God's shaping you and molding you. He's causing you to become. That's normal for the believer. And if it's not present, if it's not present, either you're not a believer or if you are, there's sin in the way. There's something that's preventing you from growing because there's rebellion that you've refused to yield over and place under the satisfaction of Christ. It's the only option. You say, well, no, 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 no. I'm I'm not growing because uh, God doesn't want me to grow. That's ridiculous. God doesn't want me to pray more. God doesn't want me to have more trust in Him. God doesn't want me to have more faith. God doesn't want me to serve Him. God doesn't want other people to know through me. Ridiculous. Of course He does. If it's not happening, it's not His fault. If it's not happening, either you've never yielded to Him or... There's an obstacle between you and he today. Because for every believer in right relationship, this move toward holiness is there. The question you and I would do well to ask ourselves is, do we see him working in those ways in our lives? So, ah, man, I prayed prayed a prayer 612 years ago, man. I'm good. Really? Where's that in the Bible? It's not. The fact of the matter is, when he saved you, He began a process of sanctification, and he is the better sanctification. Shadow and substance, sanctification versus justification. Number three, notice with me, certainty versus probability. Certainty versus probability. Hebrews 10, verse 15. It says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their hearts and on their minds. I will write them, he said, Uh, I will write them. He then says, 
and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God said that in a very definite way. And from that we find confidence. Someone said, Chris, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Why? Because we're fickle. We're faulty. We blow it. We can get up in the morning and go, praise the Lord, today is wholly dedicated to the Lord. Stub our toe and change the trajectory of the whole day. Hello? You could go on, you could get on 64, some guy cut in front of you and then cut his speed by 20 miles an hour, and you would have thought the apocalypse hit after you committed the whole day to Jesus. Hello? If you could lose your salvation, you would. So how can we have certainty? Because it doesn't depend on you, but on the God who works in you. As we just saw in verses 15 to 17, he's rehearsing Jeremiah 31, this new covenant. He says the new covenant is certain. It's not shaken. It's settled, not suspect. The new covenant, he says, I will put my law in their hearts. I will write it on their minds. They will be my people. I will be their God. God's not saying there's a 99% chance this is going. There's a great chance if they'll just cooperate. He doesn't do any of that. He's certain about it. There's a certainty over probability here. From the Lord's perspective, it's already done. This is why he declares in verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Why? Because they've been forgiven. Their sins, I remember no more. Because I've forgiven them. I want you to notice the covenant between the old new, or the contrast between the old new covenants then as he's talking about that. Hebrews 10 verse 3, he says, in those sacrifices, the sacrifices of the old covenant, in those sacrifices there's a reminder of sins year after year. In the old covenant it was built to remember. It was built because every year you had to come and bring certain prescribed sacrifices for unknown sin. But then you had the daily bringing of sacrifices for the sins you did know. You'd sit there and you're like, man, I just chewed a guy up on 64. I just let this person have it. I just cheated on my taxes. I just lied to my employer. I just acted ugly towards someone. Let me take a sacrifice and bring it to the altar and, uh, and offer it there. there was, it was built into the Old Covenant, a process of remembering. And even if the covenant even if the priest said hey you've been here three times today you got frequent flyer miles you're good man your your rewards program's booked up you don't have to worry about this anymore there'd still be something in your heart that says there's something missing it's still lacking because i know i just blew it again it's still it's still messed up that's the old covenant it's built for remembrance but verse 17 their sins and their lawless deeds i will remember no more says there is no more remembering of sin. In the new covenant, God forgets our transgressions, our sins, our rebellion. He, he moves past them because they're forgiven. It's not that he says, I, I, don't, I don't know where I put my keys. It's not that. He says, that 
dealt with, move it off to the side, we're on, we're on to something else. And he moves forward. Why? Because it's been forgiven. See, that's the key. That's how God can do this because of forgiveness. Hey, in the, we talked about this a few weeks ago when I laid out the design of the tabernacle and how you got to see into the Holy of Holies. But when you made your way into the tabernacle or the temple, the first thing you did as you came through, the first thing you saw was the altar where you would bring your sacrifice. You didn't walk into the temple without remembering the need for a blood sacrifice. It was right there in front of you every time. You may have noticed when you came through the door, we didn't have a, a bronze altar for you to bring your goats or cows or chickens or turtle doves or anything. Why? Because there's been made forgiveness for sin. See, in that day there was none, but there are none here. Why? Because we don't have to remember our sin any longer. We do remember, we celebrate a Lord's Supper or a... Uh, um, we celebrate this, the Lord's table, and there we remember, but we don't remember our sin. We remember His sacrifice. We don't remember, oh, Lord, let me tell you about the 23 things I did wrong today. We say, Lord, I'm, we remember today that your sacrifice settled all of that and more. It's not. God is forgiven and moved past. He no longer remembers our sins and lawless deeds because of forgiveness. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. That word forgiveness is the Greek word aphasis. And aphasis literally means release or pardon or cancellation. It's a uh, it's the complete removable, removal. If forgiveness were a probability, then there could be no certainty. But because forgiveness is certain, then there is hope that is also certain. Because forgiveness is perfect, because Jesus is perfect, we can have a perfect peace in pursuit of a purpose perfectly because Jesus has perfected it for us. Since forgiveness is through Him and He's perfect, we can have peace. Not potential peace, perfect peace. Perfect peace. And not only perfect peace, but also perfect power. Power to live holy lives. Power to honor Him. Power to experience the abundant life. And in that we find hope. We find that Jesus came to tell us it's better. Not... I'm going to help y'all do the best you can. He came to give us hope, not help. Why? Because he's for us. Listen, I know it's a very American idea to, hey, let's pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make sure that we do our very best and we'll get there if we just give it the, if we just give it the best opportunity, the best chance, we get our best effort, we'll get there. Hey, that's very American, but Jesus is no American. Are you following me? He didn't say, I want you to, I'm going to help you try to get there on your own. I'm going to let you climb the ladder toward holiness. He came and forgave and settled it and said, I, if you receive me, I'm at work in your life. And here's where you're going to get to. It's a settled deal because where there is forgiveness, there's no longer an offering for sin. There's no longer a need 
for these things. Jesus has already settled it. The trick for you and I is remembering that truth rather than remembering where we blew it. It's remembering that truth rather than remembering what somebody told us on television or the internet about how we needed to try harder, work harder, and send our credit card number. It's remembering Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. He settled it. He's the only one that's owed anything. And he actually signed up when he canceled it, when he effaced it. He took it, ran it through the shredder, then put it in the fire, then took the ashes and buried them. No more debt. Settled. Settled. And I think it's beautiful that he didn't hide this, but he heralded it. See, if he were just, if he were just doing a secret salvation for us, he could have just said, shh, if you figure it out, you find it. That's cool. But here's what he did. He let them hang him on a cross, and he died. And then they stuck him in a grave and rolled a rock in front of it and then stuck a bunch of special forces dudes on guard duty around it so that they could make it. Here's what they Here's what the religious leaders uh, came and asked for, what Pilate told them to do. He said, just make it as secure as you can. I thought, yeah, that's right, as secure as you can. But can I tell you, your security don't mean a thing when the king of the universe time to get up. And on the third day, he got up, he walked out, and he said, if you want to know, can I do what I said I can do? If you want to know, is this certain? If you want to know, is it a high probability or is it settled in heaven? Look at the empty tomb. The empty tomb. He was dead, but he's not dead anymore. The Bible says he didn't come back for an encore and then die again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he took his seat. And where he intercedes for you and I. And he'll stay seated there until he gets up. When does he get up? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Bible shows him getting up when his saints are martyred to welcome them home. That happened with Stephen. And he also gets up when it's time to saddle up and come back and get his people and say, that's all over from here and establish his kingdom and it's done. And it's, by the way, not a probability, but a certainty because it's been settled. And this same one who made all of that certain also extended an invitation. You could live your life with that same kind of certainty. Here's the question for you this morning and then we're done. Have you ever trusted in Him for that? I'm not asking if you've been religious. I'm not asking if you prayed that you'd not go to the bad place. I'm asking if you trusted Him for that. And if you haven't, that he's not sitting back with arms crossed and a condemning scowl on his face. We'll let him say how he was. He said, uh, I didn't come for people who were well, but for the sick. And then he said, come to me if you're weary and burdened. If you're tired of carrying that around, come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you'll find rest for your soul.
That's what he offers. But you've got to yield and trust him and follow after that. Have you? Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.